So we are going to continue this evening in our series on um, David, the life of David, and we want to see how his life experiences can influence ours. <clears throat> and the story of David we're going to look at today is one of actually the most perplexing stories in the Bible to me. Um, because while it teaches us some really important lessons, it still, at the end of it, leaves me with questions. I, I still wrestle with some things when I get to the end of this, of this story. It's kind of like, like taking bad medicine. Um, you know you'll, you'll do better afterwards, um, but you would rather avoid it if you could. And so that being said, it's an important part of David's life that we're going to look at that shows us something also very important about who God is, not only in David's life, but in our lives as well. And so following on after last week, we looked at um, David and Goliath, um, and after becoming a national hero in in killing Goliath, um, King Saul effectively he adopted um, David and brought David into his household. And that was when David's relationship with Jonathan grew, and we remember that story in Scripture. Eventually in that household, um, David became so popular uh, that he started to pose a threat to Saul. Um, and so Saul tried to get rid of him, he chased David out into the wilderness um, and forcing David effectively to start to raise his own support. And then David also um, was able to draw together an army for himself. And there's another very interesting range of stories that come along with that. Then Saul died and um, David continued to have great faith in Yahweh and his plan and his timing, and at the appropriate time, David then became king. Um, and David then grew in his kingship up until this point that we are going to be looking at um, this evening. And so we're going to be reading from Second Samuel chapter 11. Again, it's a whole chunk, um, 27 verses at least it's half of last week. Um, it's kind of small so that we could fit it on two slides. If you've got it on your phone or on your, on your paper Bible, even better. So um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 27, reads as follows. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men, and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. 
Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his own house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my own house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerub Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebez? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. 
After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. There's a, there's a lot going on in this story. Um, and I, as we go through it, I'm probably going to miss out on some things. Um, I am a man. I'm a male. Um, and I'll probably skip over much. Um, but we'll try and highlight some of the things that, um, that we can take away for us for now. Now, now this story is this massive divide of David's life and of the history of the, the monarchy in Israel. And up to this story, everything gets better and better for David up until this point. As he climbs and David is lifted by God's grace. So David was brought from being a shepherd boy out in the wilderness to being king. David united Israel. He, um, he conquered enemies, he expanded territories, um, and then he established Jerusalem as the capital city. He built this massive palace, and then he also, on top of all of that, he received a divine promise from Yahweh of an everlasting dynasty in his own house. But then after this story, it's the story of David and Bathsheba, it's, it, everything just starts going downhill. David's family starts falling apart in shocking ways, um, and he has to run for his life. Um, Israel again, then after he had unified it, it then again becomes divided, and then Israel is finally dragged off into exile, and then further on down the line, um, Jerusalem itself is, is left in ruins. And so this story is kind of seen as the tipping point um, where the dream ends and the, and the nightmare begins for David. But not only for David, also for the people who he leads. So it's the story of him being escalated by God's grace. He gets to this point and then it's, everything just drops out, falls out from under him because of his actions. And if we, if we continue to read beyond these chapters, we see from chapter 13, which is the one after this one, all the way to 24, a whole 21 chapters are all about how things start going really bad for David and those people around him. It's, it's the fallout from these actions that bring him to this point. It shows us how far-reaching the effects of our actions are, even when we think it affects only me. Up until just before David did this, things had been going really well, as I mentioned. And some theologians believe that that at this point, Israel had never been in a stronger position than it was um, up until very modern recent times. Um, and, you know, growing up, I remember, when I, when I think about this story, I remember that um, 
the story of David and Bathsheba had always been preached in ways that framed it as um, David maybe giving in to temptation, with Bathsheba oftentimes described as either an afterthought um, without any agency, or maybe she's described as this temptress who would seduce men from the rooftops. Um, and so some, sometimes when we read or hear sermons, it kind of is framed that way. Um, and so unfortunately, I think David is usually portrayed as being the one at the center of the story with not much consideration shown for women. When you read through the story, do you get that impression? Um, because women have to go through so much. And today in our modern culture, that is, it's quite a controversial way to view this story. It's one of those stories that um, pastors have to deal with when people come to them and ask them, you know, how, how do you stand by this kind of David, this kind of character who you view as one of the patriarchs? And so you realize that um, depending on the lenses that you read this story through, you come away with a different emphasis. And so for myself as a man, as a male, I come away with a different perspective. And so if my wife would read it, she would come away with a different perspective because she's a woman. Um, and so we need to think about that as we, as we engage with, um, with this text. Are there any thoughts on that? The, the, the Bible really, really mentions um, the season of spring. Um, but it's, it's used significantly here in regard to when kings go out to battle in the Old Testament. Now, from ancient times all the way through, actually, to the 1800s, armies would break from, from their time of war um, when it became winter time, you know, and, and, and then they would embark on new military campaigns in the spring. It's, it's really difficult to move your military units around in cold, wet, soggy weather. Um, and so in the case of David and his army, they were to carry on the battle with the Ammonites as it was now spring. Winter had just passed, and so it was an expectation that the king goes out with his men. And so David was supposed to be going out with his army to go and finish this battle with the Ammonites. But he wasn't where he was supposed to be as king. And when the story happened with Bathsheba, um, most people believe that David could have been about 50 years old. Um, and so he, wa he, he was at the stage in his life where he felt that he had achieved much. You know, in your middle ages, when you guys arrive there one day, um, you might feel that way. Um, and so he felt perhaps that, you know what, I've, I've, as we'd, we'd say it, I've arrived. You know that line where you feel you've, you, you've gotten to this point in your life where things are, are settled to the point that you can kind of kick back a little bit. Um, and so for David, he might have felt to himself, 
that the army was able to now handle the military affairs by themselves. And so he felt perhaps that he, he didn't need to be so hands-on in that moment, and so he just wanted to relax. And so he, he possibly held this very privileged view that he had arrived. Um, and so he didn't need to be that fervent any longer. And David, as we know, he should have been out leading his men. He should have been there um, taking the next victory. Yet he was arising from his couch, walking around on his rooftop, looking at a woman who was bathing herself um, on a rooftop across the way. Now, as we reflect on that picture um, and how one bad, one poor decision leads to another, we can ask ourselves personally, what battles or missions should I be focused on? Um, and maybe it's your springtime. Maybe it's your moment now where you need to be going out rather than staying home, sitting on the couch, watching other people, um, instead of being focused on what would add value to the kingdom. That's a good question when I just think about that as being a pivotal moment for David, a moment of decision where he should have been busying himself with kingdom things, but he found himself in a space where he was distractible. So David is on, on the roof of his palace. He's able to see the whole of the city ahead of him. And as he looks out, he sees this woman bathing herself. And he should have honored the woman. I think he should have honored the woman, and he should have looked away. But he allows this casual glance to become a lustful gaze. And you know, you can't help what you see, but you can help what you behold. There's a difference there. Um, you switch on your phone, you switch on your device, images flood into your device. Um, we spoke about pornography not too long ago. It's one of those things that in today's culture, you don't even need to go looking for it, it will come looking for you. And so you can't help some of the things that you see, but you can help some of the things that you allow to linger. You can't help but notice as we read through this, the verses there that Samuel describes for us, the overwhelming control that David has in this entire situation. There doesn't seem to be anything here that's up to chance or that could be as a result of him kind of stumbling. You know, he didn't, he didn't fumble or fall into somebody's room. Um, this is very much about David's abuse of power, and therein lies the problem. In 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 13, I actually forgot to include that slide, um, it appears there to show us that David had a weakness that was brewing. This is what 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 13 says. It says, After he left Hebron, David took more concubines 
and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. One of the commentaries that I read about this story described David as being someone who collected women. Oh, that sounds harsh. Um, and at the time that, that David had intercourse with Bathsheba, he already had six wives besides having concubines as well. And so it, it seems as though David just wasn't satisfied at this stage in his life. Um, and so David, as it, as it says there in those verses, he sent servants to inquire about this woman. David chose to have her sent to him. David took her. He laid with her. And it doesn't seem to me like Bathsheba had much say in the matter. I kind of get that impression in the way that the wording is used there. What does it sound like to you, the way that that is being described? It sounds non-consensual, Sarah. He was the king. He was the man in charge. Abuse of power. It sounds like rape, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't sound right. Even though David is the king, and that even though coming to this portion of scripture, we've built up this picture for ourselves of David as the hero, and here we see David as the zero. Because I read it, and it, it sounds to me like rape. He forced himself on this woman. She, he called her to his place. He, 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 um, he assaulted her in that way, and then she left. Um, and it sounds to me like David wouldn't have had anything to do with her again because she went back to her house afterwards, it says there in verse 4. But then because she fell pregnant, he had to do something to address his actions. Now consider this, do you, do you think, um, and this is a difficult question, do you think David enjoyed it? And answer that for yourself. Do you think he enjoyed it? Was it exhilarating for him? Did it excite him, that moment? Now think about this, how long did that moment last? He saw her late afternoon, it says. He possibly got word back from the servants within the hour regarding his inquiry about who this woman is. She was possibly then brought to him later that evening. They had intercourse, or rather he raped her. You know, we try to, we don't want to use those words, but it really sounds to me like that, yeah. Um, and then she returned the next morning, perhaps. It was one night's, one evening's worth of satisfaction for him. And it had lifelong consequences. Sin is expensive. 
it's got a huge price tag. And in this story, we see there are consequences to Bathsheba, consequences to David's family, to Uriah, who gets murdered to cover up, to Uriah's family, to the soldiers who were with him there, who probably got murdered as well. Um, And then there's consequences to the rest of the nation because of the fallout. And it even has consequences on us today if we think about it. Because we wrestle today with how God can call David a man after his own heart. And we'll, we'll kind of come back to that again. So there may have been weeks or months between um, the rape and the realization that she was pregnant. We know how long it takes for conception. And so after the humiliation period, no doubt that she would have wrestled with herself. Um, She has to send word back to the palace to say that she was pregnant. Uh, Another humiliation, if I think about it. If I think about through how many um, hands and mouths that message would have needed to be passed to arrive at the king's throne. And so after hearing that Bathsheba is pregnant, David goes to work trying to cover up the situation. And we read there that there are three attempts that he, that he takes. He has plan A, which we read about in verses 6 to 7, and this involves calling Uriah back from the battlefield. <clears throat> and he tries to get Uriah to go back home to sleep with his own wife. And, and that way, of course, everyone who thinks that it was, you would have thought that it was Uriah, not David, um, who had made, who had gotten Bathsheba pregnant. David receives Uriah, as we see there. He receives him at the palace. He gives him the night off as the king. Take the night off, essentially. He sends him home. Um, if, you use a, if you use a different version, it gives a little bit more detail than the NIV that we read from there. Sends him home with some food. But instead of taking advantage of those gestures, Uriah sleeps at the gate of the palace. He is too honorable a soldier than to enjoy certain things that he knew his fellow soldiers wouldn't be able to. That was plan A. Didn't work. Plan B. Plan B involved getting Uriah to do when drunk what he had refused to do when he was sober. So David invites him to this banquet. He arranges this banquet at the palace, gets him drunk, and then tells him to go home and sleep it off in his own bed with his own wife, of course. But Uriah still doesn't go. Plan C. David writes a letter and he he gives it to Uriah to deliver to Joab on the battlefield. And little did Uriah know that he was being made to carry his own death warrant. And in the letter, David tells the commander, Joab, that Uriah must be sent to the very front of the combat, the front lines. 
And then the soldiers, when he gets there, the soldiers that are around him, they must retreat, leave him isolated as an easy target for the enemy. And that worked. Plan C worked. And finally, Uriah was out of the picture, leaving Bathsheba unattached and able to marry David. Now, all of that leaves a really bad taste in my mouth, if you think about it, if you're honest. I mean, um, you know, you need to read through it a lot and try to process it. This is one of those stories that, as I mentioned at the start, even when I've gone through all of it, I still don't feel, I don't feel at ease at the end of all of it. Now, now in this story, there's a technicality that the Bible doesn't mention here that changes how we understand some of the story. And the technicality comes from Jewish law called the Talmud. And it's not mentioned in, in the Bible. Now, according to Jewish law, <coughs> Jewish soldiers of that time going into battle, they were actually required to give their wives conditional divorce papers. And these divorce papers would say, I divorce you effective today if I do not return from war by next month. So that was a requirement for soldiers going to war at that time. That you give your wife this conditional divorce. So that if you died while you were on the battlefield, your wife wouldn't have to be concerned or worry with the divorce and all of the fallout according to Jewish law that would have to come into place because of that. And so because of the conditional divorce given to Bathsheba, David technically did not commit adultery with her. She was divorced. Um, because kings of that period had many concubines. We actually don't know. Scripture doesn't mention how many concubines David had. But kings had many concubines um, as it was an accepted practice. And so it wouldn't have been seen as being something out of the ordinary in David showing some kind of affection in inverted commas for this particular woman. And so in the context of understanding that David was king, and as king, he answered to nobody but God, nobody thought that David was doing anything wrong. He did everything above board in the culture of the day. And so he did not have sexual relations with a married woman. Um, which would have been adultery, as this is sometimes framed. It's framed as David um, having a, an adulterous affair with a married woman. And that technicality of the Jewish law changes how we see that. Secondly, with David being king, he had the right and the authority to send any of his soldiers on a suicide mission without apology. He was the king. He had that right. And so also when David had called Uriah to come back 
to the palace from the front lines, David asked Uriah to do certain things which Uriah didn't want to do, which could have been viewed as Uriah disobeying the king's order. But David overlooked that because he was trying to achieve something. So there's another little technicality that we kind of overlook that gives him the way out, as it were. And so at that time, there wasn't really anyone who could point at David and say that he did anything wrong. Everything in this story seemed to be above board. How does that make us feel? See, it says, that says it all. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's awkward. You know, you, you can't really explain your way out of it. It's ugly, it's messy. And so nobody could accuse David of wrongdoing according to the Jewish law or the Talmud. However, whether or not he was legally permitted to do what he did, Yahweh had warned David to do better than that. To be someone after God's own heart. And so this is what the prophet Nathan was able to confront David with. And we read that in the next chapter. Now, it's a lot to read. So I'm just going to give us an edited version of it. You can go through it. It's an interesting read because um, the prophet Nathan tells him or tries to explain to him through a parable what he did. So this is what the, the story is that Nathan confronts David with about his wrongdoing, about his sin in the face of Yahweh. So he tells him there are these two men. There's one rich man and there's one poor man. And the rich man, he's really wealthy. He's got lots of cattle. He's got lots of sheep. But the poor man only has one little lamb, a ewe. And this, is not, this wasn't even a lamb that he would keep in a pen outside. It was, it was more like a pit. It's actually described there, this loving relationship that this poor man has with this lamb. And then one day, Nathan, as he's telling the story, he says, A traveler came to visit the rich man, and the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and prepares it as a meal for this traveler who came to visit him. He didn't want to take his own, one of the many cattle or one of the many sheep that he had. He didn't want to take his own. He wanted to take that one little lamb from the poor man and prepare that as a meal. And so, he's, and so Nathan is telling this story to David and David gets angry. He is angered by this story. And he said in those verses there, this rich man must die. That's what David says. And then Nathan tells him, that rich man, that's you. And so in that story, effectively, David condemns himself. 
of his own wrongdoing. And then David repents. And we read David's repentance in verse 12. If we can get it to move. Darren, can you maybe see if it will jump to the next? There it goes. Okay. And then David repents. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And then we jump to Psalm 51. Because Psalm 51 is a psalm that describes for us David's repentance. This is David's own words in Psalm 51. Darren, can you go to the next one? Is it stuck? There we go. This is what Psalm 51 says. The heading at the top of the psalm says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered offered on your altar. So after all of this, after David's meeting with Nathan, a while later he, he writes this psalm. 
And the psalm um, reveals to us his repentant heart. What do you think about it? So Uenus is kind of, Uenus' point there is, there's a, there's a context at play here, a different time, different worldviews, different regard for one another, hierarchies that exist that were well accepted and lived in, and it relates to a lot of other difficult questions that people bring to Scripture when we think about these kinds of things. And what's helpful for it, I'm coming to you now, Adam, what's helpful for it is, is how we see how, how Scripture progresses with us um, and how even when Jesus does come, there are some of the things that we see in the Old Testament that might have been oh, difficult, that Jesus then comes and he brings clarity and completion to it in his teachings as well. That really helps us, I think, to engage with what Johannes is highlighting there now in us understanding what's, what's going on behind here. Adam, do we hear that? Okay. So there, there, are, there are lots of things that, that we can take from this account. And I would encourage you to, to read through all of it again. Even go and, f- go and find out what actually happened with Bathsheba later on. Follow the, the trail and find out where she actually turned, um, turned out. So there's a lot that we can draw from this. But probably for me, the greatest lesson here, um, when we think about David, because we're trying to focus on David, um, The biggest lesson here probably is that no matter how low you sink, and in the story, David sinks really low, God is able to meet us in that really low, in that really dirty, dark place, and he's able to redeem us back from that space. And... And I think that is the reason that the story is here. Um, It leaves us feeling uneasy, possibly in the same way that we would feel uneasy when we hear about a rapist who comes to faith, or we hear about a murderer who has now come to faith. And we wrestle with what seems to us in our modern minds incomplete justice. But when we think about God's justice, we recognize that his justice works differently to our justice. I think the justice that we experience here on earth, if I needed to go to court for something, I recognize that I stand a chance. I only stand a chance of receiving true justice depending on how well I can argue. But when I think about God's justice, his is a justice that doesn't only bring healing to myself as the one who has been offended, but he is also able to bring healing to the one who has offended me. And so in the year and now, 
the completion of his justice, I think we only see some of it now. But there will come a day when we will see the fullness of his justice. And so I think we need to be thankful um, that God's grace and his love is as deep and as robust and meaningful as it is. And we need to, when we read stories like David, we need to remember that I can be David as well. This story about David could be a story about me. And I might be in a space one day where I'm going to need that kind of grace. I'm going to need that kind of love. I'm going to need that kind of forgiveness. And so God's justice brings restoration in all of its fullness when we put our trust in him. Not only to myself as the one who has wronged someone, but also for the one who has been wronged. And so this story of David and Bathsheba, I think it, to me that's one of the biggest lessons I want to take away from when we think about David's life and David's life experiences and recognizing how Yahweh had taken him on this ascending path and what it had meant to him to be at the top and then what it has meant for him to be brought down and what that journey looks like. And I think it's a journey that all believers go through. Different degrees, differing degrees, different particular issues. But in all of it, God is at work. Um, God is in control. And, um, and his grace is sufficient in that.